0: Welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. I'm Matt Fender, and we're going to be starting our fourth week of our six-week class on presuppositional apologetics. Let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll get started. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this day and this chance to gather together. We are grateful, Lord, to be able to gather together to study your word and how better to defend the faith. We ask that you'll help us to think your thoughts after you and to take every thought captive to the word of God. We pray also for the children who are being instructed this morning, uh, for those who are teaching them. We pray that each and every one of those children would grow to say that he never knew a day when he was not trusting in Christ for his salvation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what I want to do this morning, um, you know, we've covered at this point pretty much the fundamentals of the system, right? If you go back and look over the slides, which are on the internet, you'll, um, you'll, you'll sort of see that we've kind of given you the pieces, but... I'm cognizant that this material is difficult to absorb and difficult to put into practice, so we're just going to keep kind of working our way through it. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to spend um, somewhere about a third of the class just reviewing some material from last week, going back over it, getting it in our heads, and then we're going to do sort of a lab exercise. I have a series of, uh, of 20 tweets um, from various atheists and skeptics, and we're going to take them one at a time and talk about how to rebut uh, the proposition in question. Um, and hopefully we can uh, that'll give us a good practical understanding of what we're going to be after. So um, as we have said, apologetics um, is the art of defending the faith. It is frequently associated with evangelism, but of course it's also helpful to believers and that people tend to take encouragement from uh, from hearing it done and seeing you know, how how our faith is consistent and rational and um, and is the only reasonable way to think when when opposed to the secular materialism or the things of the world. Um and this was uh, I mentioned this guy, Saiten Brugen Kate or Bruggen Kate, I'm not sure how you say it, who's a very outspoken presuppositional apologist, and there's a a, a there's tons of stuff on YouTube if you want to go watch him, but this is a quote from from a video that I watched yesterday that I thought you might like. He says, we don't conclude God, we start with God. And we show them that if you don't start with God, your worldview is absurd. That's a, that's a great capsule summary of presuppositional apologetics. Um, that, that God is our presupposition, the truth of his word is our presupposition, and that gives us a consistent rational worldview, and anything else is fundamentally irrational. So first, authority of Scripture. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, um, but because the truth of Scripture is our basic presupposition. The Bible is true. And so if, you, if, you're, if you're talking to someone who's a Christian or you say you're a Christian, well, what is the, the essence of Christianity, right? It's, you know, Jesus di- you know, I'm a sinner and Jesus died for my sins. If I have faith in him, then I'll enjoy you know, eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, um, the sort of capsule of the gospel. Well, how do you know Jesus died for your sins? How do you know? What's, what's the source of that knowledge? Well, ultimately, it's God's word, right? Whether, whether you heard it from a preacher or you read it in the Bible yourself, um, it, it's, the, it's the hearing of the gospel, the reading of the gospel, God's word being proclaimed to you is how you know and you're able to respond in faith. So it's necessarily the only way we really know that is because the Bible says so, right? How do we know he was raised from the dead? Because the Bible says so. So if I'm going to believe that and I'm going to ground my life in the basic propositions of the gospel which i necessarily if they're true then they become the most important truths you know that there are but if i'm going to believe that then i have to accept the authority of scripture because it's the only way i could know and once i accept the authority of scripture then i necessarily have to believe the whole bible now why is that why can't i just pick and choose why can't i say well yeah i believe jesus was raised from the dead but i don't believe god created the world in six days because that did not make any sense um, first of all, it seems a little odd. Like, you're willing to accept that a man was ra- that, that, that you know, God became man and was raised in the dead, but you're not willing to accept that God created the world? That doesn't make a ton of sense to me. But, um, but even assuming you, you want to do that, the problem with cherry-picking the Bible is that you're then making yourself the ultimate authority and not the Scripture itself, right? So as soon as you say there's one part of the Bible you don't believe, then you can no longer claim that the inerrant Scriptures are the basis of your worldview. Right, you've abandoned that move intellectually because now you're the supreme authority. Um, and how do I know the Bible's true? Because the witness of the Holy Spirit. So, at the the core of doing presuppositional apologetics, it's about comparing worldviews, right? So we have to understand first and foremost what is each person's fundamental authority. What is your ultimate authority? What is that to which you you know take a priori your basic presupposition, and. For the Christian, as I've said to you many times in this class and will continue to say, your ultimate authority is the Word of God, it is the Bible. For most unbelievers, and I think what would suggest for all unbelievers, it's ultimately himself. Either the Bible or it's yourself. And even if you appeal to some other transcendental authority, like you say, well, you know, gosh, I'm a Hindu and there's Hindu scriptures and I think those are the ultimate authority. Well, it's still ultimately yourself because in that case, the Holy Spirit did not in fact witness to you and tell you that it was true. It is your it is your own you know brain that you're using to assert that that's true. Yes. So for the tape, the question is even if we assume that the Bible is our ultimate authority, what I what I admit or agree with that there are different opinions about what the Bible is saying in certain places. Certainly, okay. I mean I I think there are some of those discussions that are reasonable, and there are some that are unreasonable. But if we're having a conversation about where we both say, yes, the Scripture is inerrant in its original languages, we believe these words are true, but what do we do with this exact thing? That's a a conversation that Christians can have, right? If, we have, if we're having a conversation where one of us is saying, well, I'm going to resort to German higher criticism, and I'm going to suggest to you that the book of Genesis isn't what it purports to be, but it's rather five different texts that were edited together many years later by some people that were trying to achieve propaganda for national Israel, that, that that's not a conversation Christians can have, because at that point you have, you're no longer saying that the Scripture is inerrant. So that's so that that's to me is the key is the key distinction, right? If I if I crack a commentary to teach one of these classes and the guy starts talking about the, the different texts that were edited later, I'm like, okay, I'm putting that one away. That's not that's not helpful to me because that guy doesn't believe in the inerrancy of scripture. I, I think I'm mostly concerned about view of um yes. People can people do have divergent views about scripture who believe in the inerrancy of scripture. That is true. That is not what we're talking about in this class. Um, but but happy to clarify that. So Anyway, talk about ultimate authority. So we talk about worldviews, right? What's a worldview? A world, we throw that word around a lot. A worldview is a network of presuppositions. It's the system of fundamental beliefs that you use to live your life, right? And understanding the worldview of your opponent is the key to defending the faith. We're learning to expose the opponent's worldview, point out its inconsistencies, and contrast it with the Christian worldview. That's, that's what we're doing in, the, in this system. Um, so what does a worldview have to have, right? If I'm going to have a worldview, what are the pieces of my worldview? Um, well, there's three basic areas of philosophy that you have to have, right? Whether you know these words or not, it's, it, you don't have a worldview if you don't have these three things. So for the first is, 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 metaphysics, right? And we talked about metaphysics, the, the big questions, origins, meaning of life, you know, who is man and what's his purpose? Um, epistemology, theory of knowledge, how do we know stuff? Can we know stuff? And then ethics is you know how should we act, how you know morality, ethics, rules of living. Um, and in the Christian worldview, we have answers to all these things if we believe that the scriptures are inerrant and true. It gives us answers, right? It gives us a robust metaphysics. It tells us that God, cre- where did the world come Well, God created the world. Okay, easy, solve that problem. Check. Um, what is, what's, the, what's the meaning of life? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Got that. Check. Where is history going? Right, what's, what's, where, where, where's, where's, what's the point of all this? Well, we got the answer to that too, right? We know that we're moving towards the eschaton, that Christ is going to return, and the world is going to end, and there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth and a judgment day. Okay, boom, there it is. Those are metaphysics. All the big questions that all these philosophers would love to know the answers to, you got them. It's in the Bible. Easy. Um, epistemology, right? This is, this is probably the most esoteric of these concepts, which is how can we know anything? How, you know, do we? How do, can we sit there and just sort of navel gaze? Are we trapped in the matrix? Um, can we rely on our senses? And the answer is yes, we can because God created us, and we know it because the Bible is true and the Holy Spirit is revealed to us. So yes, we really exist. This is not a dream. Um, the things that you observe with your senses are actually true and can be relied upon. Your reason can be is reliable and can be relied upon. And without that foundation, you don't have a basis for knowing any of those things. This is one of the key, key things we use in presuppositional apologetics. We can gain knowledge about the world, right? We can, use, in fact, we can, in fact, use the scientific method. Why? Because we can rely upon our reason and our senses. The scientific method wouldn't do us any good if we didn't have those pieces to start with, right? It only works if you have inputs and the ability to make observations. Um, and then finally, Christianity, of course, gives us a comprehensive system of ethics, because the Bible is true, God's moral law, it's binding on all people at all times. And you know, uh, we've got lots of people who've done a lot of writing, including in the larger catechism, about what to do with the law and the ethical implications of it. And there's you know, much else has been written. But because we have a basis in the Bible for God's law, we can then have a robust system of ethics and morality because we can appeal to that authority. Um, so, in contrast, secular materialism, which is where we mostly find ourselves contending with in our time and place and culture, it lacks a robust metaphysics, right? If you talk to someone who's a materialist, who denies God, denies anything, denies the transcendental completely, then there is no answer to the meaning of life other than whatever you say it is, right? This is kind of where Nietzsche ended up, right, was you have to create your own meaning because once you take away God, then you don't get to keep the things of God. And there, there just isn't any meaning. That's, that's, that's why you see some of these sort of existentialists end up committing suicide because they ultimately can't deal with the reality that there is no meaning to life. But so that, that's, a, that's probably the, the biggest hole in secular materialism is an utter lack of metaphysics. No, no, no idea about origins, no idea about meaning, no idea about where history is going. If you talk to a Marxist, um, he'll tell you that, you know, history is moving in this dialectic direction towards, you know, the state's going to wither away and blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, why? You just said that. What's your authority for it, right? Um, And someone might describe that empirically, say, well, we can look at history and we think it's moving in this direction, but it still begs the question of, you know, how do you know? Um, You can't answer these metaphysical questions apart from some kind of God or something like God. Um, And then secular materialism also has to assume its epistemology, its theory of knowledge. And we saw that last week when we were looking at the material from from Ayn Rand, you know, it says epistemology. <laughs> I, you know, the world is real. What I can trust, what I see and hear, it's just taken as an assumption, right? Um, with with no no basis whatsoever. Um, that we can trust trust our senses, trust our reason. Um, and then finally, ethics, and this is one of the things we're focused on a lot in this class, and that is, absent some something like God, some kind of transcendental authority, all ethics and morality are necessarily matters of opinion. Right, that I if if you know, I I think it's you know wrong to murder people, and you say it's okay to murder people. Unless one of us can appeal to something outside ourselves, then we're just talking at each other. There's there's it's just it's just just an opinion. It's I like apple pie and you like blueberry, Um, and so this is a this is a serious problem for the materialist for the atheist that there's really no answer to. And the answer is, do the does someone who is a materialist actually walk around thinking that there's no morality? Well, no. In fact, you know, he does in fact have ethics and morality because they're they're written on his heart as part of the law of God. Because he's trading on the borrowed currency of the world around him. That he's grown up in a society which is founded essentially on biblical morality, right? And we're going to look at that a little more in, in, in a little bit. Um, in terms of meaning, one of the things you'll hear a lot, and probably I would say the dominant assumption of our culture is that the, pur- the, the purpose of life is to be happy. That's, that's the point. You just need to do whatever makes you happy. You know? And the problem with that, of course, is that well, what is happiness? What, that requires some definition of meaning, some definition of fulfillment. And if you have live very long and watched it, the lives of others, you'll see that people who are chasing their own happiness is a lot like dog, a dog chasing its own tail because it's an ever-shifting concept. And absent some concrete foundation, um, it leads to misery. So remember, of course, that the Christian worldview has its presuppositions, too. But ours are consistent, and our most basic presupposition is that the Bible is true. We should freely admit that. Right? If somebody says to you, well, I how do you know the Bible is true? I don't believe the Bible is true. it says, yes, sir, I agree. You don't, I understand you don't believe the Bible is true. And, I, and I, it is absolutely my basic assumption. But I think you'll agree with me that once I agree that the Bible is true, the rest of my worldview then makes sense. Let's talk about your worldview and what it's based on. And the answer is almost always nothing. So that brings us to the transcendental argument for God, or T-A-G. Um, and this is kind of like the big deal of presuppositional apologetics, how to do the transcendental argument for God. And you should all be able to do this by the end of this class. We're going to do it a bunch today. Um, and it's very, it's very easy to do. And remember, our goal is to expose the worldview of the unbeliever and demonstrate its irrationality and absurdity. Demonstrate that there's no basis for the things they purport to know apart from God. Um, so how does it work? This is the quote from Greg Bonson. A transcendental argument begins with any item of experience or belief whatsoever and proceeds by critical analysis to ask what conditions or what other beliefs would need to be true in order for that original experience or belief to make sense, be meaningful, be meaningful, or be intelligible to us. We're going to work through this with our tweets here in a few minutes, but put simply, what's something you believe and how do you know? And this will work with essentially any item of knowledge. Um, I think it works best when arguing for morality because it's, it's, it's something that everybody has to think about. If you start talking about epistemology, there are some people that just are going to kind of not even want to talk about that because it doesn't register with them. Um, but if you start, but everybody has moral instincts. Everybody has basic ideas about right and wrong. And even people who utterly deny God invariably make strong moral claims and assertions on a regular basis. And so that gives us, a, it gives us an end. That's a chink in the armor. It gives us a, you know, something to hang our hat on to start talking to them. And if, if you do this in a winsome way, right, where you're not yelling at somebody in the street but saying, oh, well, really, what causes you to say that? Tell me more. Everybody's happy to talk to you. They're dying to tell you about whatever it is they're passionate about. So let them talk. Ask them some questions. Peel that onion and see if you can get, get down to where there's just nothing underneath it. And invariably, you can. Um, so I said this earlier, but I keep saying it. Without God, there's no standard of morality. All other approaches are either hopelessly inconsistent or beg the basic question of by what authority? In other words, says who? You've got to appeal to something. There has to be some authority That has the ability to dictate ethics and moral rules. Otherwise, there aren't any. Um, And so, part of the inconsistency we're seeking to expose is that everyone does, in fact, both have moral instincts and live by them. And that's because ultimately the law of God is written on their hearts, right? Everyone ultimately knows what's right and wrong, even if they're in rebellion and deny it. Um, We talked about this last week the, the moral relativist position. You know, I don't believe in absolute morality about what's right and wrong for me. You have your morality and I have mine. Don't try to impose your morality on me. I mean, this is, if you think about it, this is so stupid you can't believe you would, somebody would even utter it, right? Because in order for, for a moral truth to be a moral truth, it must necessarily be universal. Otherwise, it's not a moral truth. It's just an opinion, right? Pick any, any moral or ethical rule you want, you know, it's like, oh, oh well, you know, I think it's wrong to lie, but I don't want to impose my, you know, morality on anyone else. So it's okay for everyone else to lie. You want to live in a world where everyone else lies? No, of course you don't. Yeah, uh, would the expression "you do you" be that type of thing? Maybe if it was said in the context of a discussion about ethics or morality, right? You, somebody might also say that in the context of fashion. You know, like, like I don't like that shirt, but you do. You, you know, that wouldn't be an be an ethical question. But if it was, but if you're talking about something ethical, yeah. No, if it was, then yes. But it was depend on the context. So absolutely. But 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 ultimately, if you're going to make a moral statement, it's not really a moral statement unless it belongs to everybody, right? Otherwise, it's just a you know I like skateboarding, you know, and you don't. It doesn't. Is, that's not an ethical or moral statement. Um, the other one like this that you hear all the time, you know, you can't legislate morality. So this is even more absurd because that's what we do with morality as we legislate it. That's what the law is, is a series of rules that you have to follow or, or suffer consequences, right? And you know, we have laws against you know, murder and you know, theft and sexual assault and all, all sorts of stuff, and those are necessarily moral maxims given the force of law. So the person saying this invariably means something along the lines of, well, you know, I, what I really what I don't want you to do is pass a law to keep me from doing something that I want to do. Right? It, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that I don't want there to be any moral laws at all. I just There's some particular thing I want to do, usually some kind of deviant sexual behavior, that um, that I think shouldn't be banned. So that's just really kind of silly. And, and the way to approach that is just to ask some questions. Oh, you shouldn't legislate morality? Well, should there be laws against theft? What if I want to steal your car right now? Would that be all right? Should that be illegal? It, it's fairly easy to, to deal with. Okay, covered this slide... You know, that ultimately, when arguing about morality, find something they believe, ask them what the basis for it is, keep drilling down, and perhaps, I got some questions about this last week on this this matter of, you know, oh well, gosh, if I want to find common ground to talk about why I, because, you know, maybe the moral belief being asserted is something you agree with. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is. Maybe it's some, something, some environmentalism or something like that. We say, oh gosh, well, you know, we need to clean up the river and not have the river be polluted. Well, it's, oh, yes, you know, I, I agree with that. We shouldn't pollute the river. In which case, you can sort of go to the Dominion mandate in Genesis and say, well, I've got a basis for believing that what you're believing. But, but you don't have to do it that way, because they might be saying something that is just wrong, right? And so the example here on the next slide, you know, um, and I think I found this on the internet somewhere, laws that prohibit gender-affirming care for children are immoral. All right, well, there's a lot to unpack in that statement, but ultimately it's a moral maxim, right? It's, it's, it's well, okay. Well, I'm not, so I'm not going to try to join that argument, right? Because I don't, I don't agree with it. So what I'm going to say instead is something like, well, what led you to that conclusion? Or you say it's immoral. What moral rule does that transgress? And maybe you'll get something back like, well, you know, self-determination and defining your own concept of meaning is the most basic human right. You know, somebody might say something like that. And, okay, well, well, why? What's your authority for that? Where is that written down, and why should we all live by that principle? crickets you know um but 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 listen you know respond have a real like sincere conversation because you're not going to you're not going to make any ground with anybody if you don't really listen to them and that's a mistake i see a lot of people make in apologetics conversations is i just want to shout at you about the truth and i'm not going to really listen to you right well nobody you're not going to get a hearing if you don't listen first and part of what's so powerful about this method is you're going to really listen and then respond with just a few simple questions, which, is, which ultimately, how do you know what led you to believe that? Just keep peeling that onion, and you're going to get down to the fact that there's nothing in the middle. Um, as I said before, never forget, without transcendental authority, all moral statements are matters of opinion. Okay. We've been through that. New thing this week. I haven't covered this in this class yet, although I've done done it in other versions of it. Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Um, On its face, this always seems sort of troubling. Say, well, wait, do I answer him according to his folly or not? What am I supposed to do? Um, But upon reflection, this is one of these sort of like key texts. For, for what we're seeking to do, right? So I'm not going to answer the fool according to his folly in that I'm not going to assume that his presuppositions are true, right? I'm not going to start having a conversation by assuming not God, right? That would be un- incredibly unwise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I can't know anything if I don't know that, so I'm not going to do that. But what I am going to do is I am going to give an answer, right? I'm going to respond to the folly, right? Lest he be wise in his own eyes. And we're going we're gonna to see some great examples of this here as we're about to delve into our practical exercise. So let's start. I seem to have lost my projector. Hopefully it will come back. Did not like that slide, apparently. There we go. All right. So this, these are these are all like utterly random tweets. I just sat down and spent several hours yesterday reading Twitter, um, and we'll, we'll, I don't I don't know what to do about this. But I'll read them to you if nothing else, but hopefully it'll come back. So this first one says, um, "The existence of God is non-debatable. God has never existed and never will." So. Let's think through that. What, what do you, let's, let's say someone's... And I, I don't necessarily recommend debating this on the Internet, by the way. I'm not sure that, that's, that's wise. Um, we're talking about nuanced concepts, and we want to be in a relationship, and so I don't necessarily recommend tweeting back and forth on this. But, but this was a great way to get some material. Um, the existence of God is non-debatable. God has never existed and never will. Well, those are sort of two statements, right? And so to say something is is non-debatable seems to say, okay, well, this is a a question that is so settled that we can't even talk about it, right? Well, I'm not sure anything is non-debatable, because what you're really saying is I'm not even willing to consider this. But then, so let's set that aside for a second and say God has never existed and never will. What's the obvious answer? Right. (laughs)
1: Well, how do you know?
0: Because logically, that's a fundamentally impossible proposition, right? It's proving a negative, so n- anyone who's honest can never, is never going to be able to stick to that position. But let's find out. You know what? How do you know? And start talking about worldview. Right? And, and drill down a layer and say, okay, so I take it you don't believe in God. Is that right? Yeah, no, no absolutely. God doesn't exist. Really. Well, how do you know God doesn't exist? Well, and you're going to get something like, well, e- either there's not enough evidence of God, or maybe you're going to get, like, the problem of evil right? This is, this is sort of like classic thing you have to deal with. Well, you know, there's all these horrible things that happen, and there's, you know, babies being burned to death, and people are getting cancer, and there's all this evil in the world. And what's the response to that? Well, you know what? You're right. There is a lot of evil in the world. Do you know where it comes from? What's the origin of it? You say, well, I, I don't, couldn't believe in a God that allowed that to happen. Okay, well, so are you creating God in your own mind, or is there a God outside of you that you're going to seek to know, and how can you know anything about him? And just sort of ask those questions. But I think this is a pretty easy one because there's just not that much to it, right? Um, God has never existed and never will. Well, how do you know? And, and, and what, what, can, what things would have to be true in order? And, and you can even go down the kind of epistemology route of, well, how do you know anything? Um, but ultimately, the key is expose the worldview. All right, let's try another tweet here. I wonder if, I, if I, these are have more visual information than just the plain text slides, and I wonder if that's overdriving the projector somehow. But don't know. Uh. Oh, it's up there. Let's see if it'll stay. So this is two tweets. The first one says, religion is a mental illness. You were either groomed as a kid into it or persuaded at a low and vulnerable time in your life, there are no sane, happy people who freely choose to become devoutly religious. So let's deal with that one first before we deal with their response. Okay, so let's look at the first, the first assertion. Religion is a mental illness. Okay, well, what do you mean by that? Right, let's define some terms. Right? This is clearly hyperbole, but well, first of all, we've got to decide, well, what do you mean by a mental illness? What would it mean to be not mentally ill, right? What would it mean to be mentally healthy? And we've got to sort of establish that first, right? And ultimately, I expect you're going to get an answer that's something like, well, to, to, to believe in a religion, a transcendental religion, requires you to be irrational and absurd, to believe things that don't make any sense and can't possibly be true, and therefore your mind must be broken, right? Okay, well, what's, some, what's something you believe in, sir? How do you know you're talking to me right now? What do you mean? That's really silly. Well, no, I'm just asking you a question. Do you, do you believe what you, what you, you're actually sitting here talking to me? Do you I'm really wearing a seersucker suit? How do you know? What did you have for breakfast morning? How do you know that? And just start pushing on the worldview a little bit. And you can always go to ethics and morality, because invariably, somebody who has this much negative things to say about organized religion is probably going to turn to some version of the problem of evil. And so let's start talking about that. Um, the next sense, you were either groomed, you were either groomed as a kid into it, or persuaded at a low and vulnerable time in your life. Now, you'll note here they're trying to use the term "groomed" to kind of turn that around and distort it, right? What that word has meant for a long time is, you know, somebody who is a pedophile trying to prepare a child to be victimized by by, by sort of slowly developing a relationship over time, right? So they're making an, a, an analogy here, a metaphor that. Teaching religion to children is like child molestation. Um, okay, well, really, let's, let's talk about that. So you think religion is harmful? But the key is, don't get mad. Just start asking questions. Say, well, I really want to understand what you believe. you know. And we finish with, there are no sane, happy people who freely choose to become devoutly religious. Really? Okay, well, what does it mean to be sane? Or, of course, the great one, what does it mean to be happy? Because that, that, that begs that basic metaphysical question of what is life all about? What is it we seek to do, right? And then the response here says, the problem is with the clergies. Religion is just a belief. It's how you interpret them that matters. All right, now that's a little confusing. Um, it goes on, they, they, presumably meaning world religions or something, they contain wisdoms to cherry-pick. If we try to understand their intent instead of being told how to think, What is written by man should be deciphered by man. Man equals human. Um, So where this seems to be going is to suggest that there's some content in the teachings of various religions that may be of value, but I can't take it at face value. I've got to work through it and decide for myself what's wise and what's valuable. Well, what's the basic problem with that? Is there any authority to it if you're going to pick out from it what you like? Well, no, of course not, right? Yeah, so you're still you're making yourself the supreme authority and suggesting that maybe there's something here, but it's got to be interpreted by you to pick the parts you like. Well, then why are you reading it at all? Right? Because what standard do you have to compare it to? What other authority is there that you can use to determine which parts of the scriptures are wisdom that's of benefit to you? And ultimately, that authority, you're back, we're back to where we were earlier, right? Your ultimate authority is yourself. So ultimately, you know, how do you know anything? How do you live your life? How do you have any moral principles? How do you have any concept of, of, of where things are going? Um, and so it isn't really true that there's any value to this religious stuff, is there? Right? Really, what you're saying is you're the judge of, of, of God. You're the judge of yourself. And you really have no meaning in your life. Is that what you're saying? All right. Let's see if this next one will come up. So this is um, a tweet from a, an account called Countering Christianity, and it says, John 14, 28, and twenty seventeen contradict the idea that Jesus is God, though. All right. So what do we do with this? Well, we might start setting aside we're going to look at the text in a second. We might start by saying, well, um, okay, so do you believe the Bible's true? And you're probably going to get, probably the answer is probably no, right? This is probably something that's said in the context of, I don't believe the Bible's true, and I'm trying to expose the inconsistencies in your worldview, Christian. I'm trying to expose that the Bible doesn't make sense. That's pro- probably what, what it's going to amount to. But most of the time when somebody says like this, when somebody starts cherry-picking Bible verses to tell you they don't make any sense, they don't understand the Bible. They haven't read it. They have read a couple cherry-picked verses, but they don't, they don't understand it in context. They certainly don't understand System of doctrine. So, okay, well, let's start by saying, well, hey, let's look at those verses and let's see what they say. Boom. John 14, 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Okay, so this is this is words of Jesus. And we have a skeptic who's arguing that this, this language stands for the proposition that Jesus isn't God. Well, it certainly draws a distinction between jesus and the father and says the father is greater than i and i'm going to the father so in order to understand that right we have to have the larger biblical context of understanding the incarnate christ how he took on man he took on flesh and was in submission to the law in order to live a perfect life, live the life that we should have lived and ultimately die the death that we should have, have died, right? So he is perfectly obeying the law. He is in submission to the Father. And it then brings us to the question, and let's look at the next verse. This is the same thing, John 20, 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So again, same thing. Drawing a distinction between the, the, the Father and the Son, suggesting that um, the Son is in submission to the Father and is ultimately going to the Father. Same, same, same points, right? And so if we're going to answer this well, and again, we can always just ask the question, turn around and say, well, what's your view? What do you believe? I know you don't like the Bible, right? That's, that's a move that's always available to you as a presuppositionalist in apologetics is go on offense. But we should have some ability to defend our faith, right? To actually know our doctrine and give an answer to this, because this is this is a legitimate question somebody might have, right? And so what do we need to know? Well, we need to know that in the economy of salvation, the son did become subordinate to the father. Now, I am not saying, and don't anybody I say I said, that the son is in eternal submission to the father in an ontological sense. There are people who say that, that would be wrong. Um, not saying that, but in the economy of salvation, for purposes of saving the world, the eternal second person of the Trinity did become subservient to the Father. He did take on flesh. He did perfectly obey the law, and so that doesn't mean he's not God. It means that in the in the in the Trin- trinitarian relation, he you know took on flesh and came to earth. So you want to be able to say something about that, and if somebody like sort of pins you on something like that and you don't know what to say be humble so you know that's a great question and I don't possibly understand everything about every point of Christian doctrine because we have 2,000 years of it let's let's, let's agree to talk again and I'm going to go back and talk with my my pastor one of my elders and, and we'd love to continue this conversation don't ever hesitate to do that right be humble all right so this one Um, another, Another random tweet. We know that Jesus Christ was a fictional character created by the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 A.D., and modeled after Julius Caesar to pacify the poor in the Roman Empire. I love this. There's just gold on Twitter, by the way. Um, and <laughs> if, you're, if you're trying to do this, like, this is awesome. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm using that one. Um, I might start by saying, oh, I, I know you call it 325 AD. So are you acknowledging the lordship of Jesus? Um, <laughs> but <laughs> that might be a little smart and maybe not the best thing to say. But, but okay, you all know what to say to this. How do you know? right? You're making a assertion that Christ is a fictional character created by the Council of Nicaea. Well, have you made a great study of the Council of Nicaea? What resources do you have? Apparently, lots of people say lots of things about the Council of Nicaea. Um, They they did, in fact, give us the Nicene Creed, which tells us some things about Christ. But how do you know? You're asserting that Jesus didn't exist? Well, how do you know that? You know, were you there? Um, you, were, did you bear witness to these things personally? Did you, were you there when, somebody, when a bunch of guys had a conversation and said, oh, well, you know, let's, let's invent a character and call him Jesus? No. Um, this is just a bald assertion. Right? So, so you might say, okay, well, tell me you know, how, why you think you know that. And then, and, and, you can, and then once you sort of get past that politely and don't be defensive, just ask the questions, then just start pivoting. So, okay, well, tell me about your worldview. It seems like you don't believe Christianity is true. What do you believe? And how do you know? And tell me how that makes sense. And tell me how that lets you live your life. And just peel that onion, right? You can, this, the thing is, this, this move it works with anybody because they all want to tell you what they believe. So just ask them and be gentle because this is brutal and devastating if done correctly. Yes, Paul? I, I, I saw that, but I looked at some of his other tweets, and it didn't sound like he was a consistent Muslim either. He sounded like he was a skeptic. Uh, <laughs> I spent way too much time on this yesterday. Like <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this next one, and again, we're apparently overdriving the graphics on our projector, but it's got a picture at the top of um, like this sort of human-like figure suspended in a pentagram in the air. It's a people conducting some kind of ritual under it. And it says, people don't need to be saved or rescued People need knowledge of their own power and how to access it. So this is like some some kind of pagan sort of thing going on here, right? And say, okay, let's take those statements one at a time, if this person were sitting in front of you. And you say, okay, well, you say people don't need to be saved or rescued. Um, Do you believe in God? well, no, I believe in the goddess, I worship the earth, or whatever, whatever, I'm going to say, okay, well, does, does this transcendental authority that you're appealing to, the, the goddess of the earth, have you know, a moral law? Are there universal moral principles that are dictated by that moral authority? And if so, how can you know them? Do they apply to everybody at all times? And how do you know? Just Keep asking the questions, you'll get there, right? Um, people need knowledge of their own power and how to access it. Well, okay. So do you think that there's you know some untapped spiritual power inherent in people? Why do you think that? Do you know how to access it? How does that work? How do you know? Just just be polite. Ask the questions. Yes. Well, so the question was about you're talking to a Muslim and who 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 appeals to the transcendental authority of the Quran or something like that? How do you, how do you answer that? Well, and, and my response is that I th- as a caveat when I started this class, if you're talking to someone who's a true believer in another transcendental religion, this is less effective. Presuppositional apologetics is at its peak. It is the most useful tool when dealing with a materialist or a skeptic of some sort. What I would suggest to you is the overwhelming majority of Muslims you will meet in this country are cultural Muslims who don't really believe it. That's certainly been my experience. There's some. I'm not saying there aren't any. And, and they are, you're just going to be, have to be slow and careful. Say, oh, do you really believe everything in the Quran is true? And then maybe you're going to have to start pointing to some counterintuitive things. And just be gentle. Right? That's, you're, you're not necessarily going to get like, the, the knife-to-the-heart you know, argument on that, on that kind of, kind of conversation. It's going to be slower, more relational, more gentle. Um, but, if you're dealing, but if you talk to somebody who is a skeptical Muslim, you know, gosh, my parents came here from Iran, and, and I was raised as sort of cultural Muslims, but, you know, I said, well, do you, do you believe Islam is true? And as soon as you get some some comment that, well, I don't really believe all of it, or, you know, I kind of like it culturally, but, you know, then you've got an opening, right? And then you use that opening, but be gentle. Okay, so how do you know which parts of Islam are true? And How do you decide which parts you're going to follow, right? And then, then then the whole technique works works fine. But if you're meeting someone who is a really, like, hardcore true believer... Then you're going to have to be much slower and much more gentle, Um, because if they if they if they really believe it, then this technique is not nearly as effective. There was another question in the back. So the question from Mrs. Bullock is: Do I think um, that guilt? What what role do guilt and shame, and people's inherent you know moral sense have, have? And the answer is: I think I've said several times in the class that I think that that's very important because ultimately the law of God is written on everyone's heart, right? And if you're talking to somebody who's already gotten to the point of conceding that there is a moral law and I've transgressed it, well, then you're way down the road in the conversation, right? At that point, say, well, okay, well, I see you have these feelings. How do you know? What is the moral law? What are those rules and where do they come from? And how do you think you're going to deal with it? At that point, you're close to being able to present the gospel at that point, right? But if we back up from that and we're dealing with somebody who says all morality is relative you know you have no basis to judge me or something like that. Well, we're going to have to do some work to get to the point that you're talking about, but we're always going to keep in the back of our mind that everybody knows God exists. Everybody God knows is real. Everybody has a conscience. Everybody has a law of God written in their heart. And we're going to we're going to try to expose that. That but 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 you're not most people aren't already at that point. If somebody's at that very tender point you describe, well then you can then very gently take the final couple of moves. So, good question. All right, our next uh, tweet here which seems to be standing up on the screen, um, is this sort of meme. And it says, according to Christian belief, it's got a picture of Jeffrey Dahmer. It says, this man, Jeffrey Dahmer, murdered 17 people, converts to Christianity while in prison, and is now in heaven with God. And it says, this other man, Carl Sagan, astronomer, planetary scientist, cosmologist, astrophysicist, astrobiologist, educator, and author, rejects the notion of a Christian God, and is therefore now burning for eternity in hell. Of all the absurdities offered up by religion, none exemplifies a better example of insanity than the willful acceptance of this belief. All right, again, this is gold. Like, I love this, right? And and you should, too. Like, if someone were sitting there across the table telling you this, what an amazing opportunity to talk about the gospel, right? You've you got so much to work with here, you don't even know where to start, right? Um, and, and the first thing is, is you're making a comparison between murderer Jeffrey Dahmer and scientist Carl Sagan, right? And so the first thing we have to establish is, so you seem to be suggesting, sir, that Dahmer is a deeply immoral person and Sagan is a deeply moral person, right? And that there should be different eternal consequences for the two of them. Well, first of all, do you even believe in eternal consequences? The answer is probably no. But then secondly, okay, well, by what standard do you judge Sagan and Dahmer? By what standard do you say that one is good and the other is bad? What is the good, sir? And, you know, you're going to get something, right? It's going to, and, and if it's an appeal to biblical authority, because he might say, well, I'm not talking about me. We're talking about you. And your Bible says, oh, okay, well, we're happy to talk to you about that. But first, I want to understand um, what you believe is right and wrong and by what standard you make this comparison. And then we go right down the arguing for morality route, Right? But ultimately, what's the answer to this according to Christianity? Somebody tell me. Yes, yes what? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is true, but why is it true? Why is it true that, that, it's, that it's just? Is it just for Sagan to go to hell? And, and I have no idea if every bomber truly repented. I don't know. But why do they need to turn to God? Why did Sagan need to turn to God? Because he's a sinner. That's, that, that's the point. In other words, he's a sinner, Dahmer's a sinner, and Dahmer may be a worse sinner, right? We can say he, you know, he did worse stuff than Sagan did. I don't know, but let's, let's, let's assume that's true. Then, but, but both of them have transgressed the law of God, and both of them deserve eternal punishment, but for the grace of Christ. And how do we know? Well, we have to have a moral standard to compare that to, and that is the holy law of God. So that's why the first part of this conversation with this, with this individual has to be by what standard? What is morality? What is the good? All right. Now we have a tweet from someone who calls himself Queer Capybara. And he says, uh, or she, I don't know, um, no, but kids should have an anti theist revolutionary education, and all religious buildings and monuments should be nationalized or destroyed. You can just feel the edge on this one, right? Um, but, all right, well, let's, 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 let's figure out what to do with that, right? So first, I note the phrase revolutionary education, which I'm fairly confident is some appeal to some kind of Marxist ideology, right? That we all need to learn about the class struggle. Um, okay, well, so we can immediately go to that move and say, oh, well, what do you mean by revolution? And what is this ideology? And why do you believe that? What led you to that conclusion? Really? So you think that you know, the means of production should be owned by the masses? Really? Okay, well, tell me more about that. Why do you think that? What's your authority for that? Right? Start digging into that, right? And, uh, and that's, that's easy enough. Okay, and now you're making a very strong statement here that children should be educated as anti-theists. So you think the government should mandate what every child is taught, irrespective of what the child's parents believe? What led you to that conclusion? What is the source of that authority? And what is the source of the power of the state that can take children from their parents and forcibly educate them? Help me understand. I want to know what you're saying, sir. Just keep, keep working at it. Um, now, for somebody to say something like this is probably like pretty wound up, right? So you're going to have to slowly step through it. Okay. And now all religious buildings and monuments should be nationalized or destroyed? Well, do you believe in private property, sir? And do you think that, that property is mean? You keep, oh, you don't believe in private property. You're a Marxist. Got it. Check. So should your property be nationalized? You know, I just you can have a ton of fun with this. It goes on forever. But, but the, same, the, same, the same principle applies. But you've got to remember, if, you know, we're sitting here making fun of tweets on the Internet, but if you're having an actual conversation with somebody across the coffee table, right, or, you know, how, or at the bar, how are you going to do this? You're going to do it gently, with gentleness and respect. And you got to be careful because the, once you know the truth and once you understand what's going on here, this is so easy, right? This, I mean, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, but, you, but, you, 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 but the key is you have to be humble and you have to listen in order for it to work. Because if you get your back up and become defensive and get angry, you're not going to be effective. What's effective is be confident in the Lord. Be confident that the Scriptures are true. And you, you know you're right. You know this guy is wrong. And through the grace of God, you know that the Scriptures are true. So pray for him. But help him, help him, help gently show him that his worldview is incorrect and bound grace on nothing. But don't beat him up. Why would you do that? You're trying to do evangelism. All right, we're almost out of time. Um, here's another one um, from someone called Hugh and Cry over Kronstadt, who uh, there's a picture of the guy from Breaking Bad yelling at somebody and says, Your beliefs are stupid. And then we have bullet points. Jesus was not resurrected. Miracles are not real. Your prayers are not being listened to. You have doubts about your faith in God, and you heavily repress them. Religious indoctrination is a social scourge. Organized religion is disappearing faster and faster. All right, well, let's take a step back. We're going to have to take those one at a time, aren't we? Um, so we'll ignore that your beliefs are stupid, because that's not, not really a, a statement we can do much with, other than it's just an emotional outcry. Jesus was not resurrected. Okay, I'll, let's hear it. How do you know, right? How do you know anything about Jesus? Well, we know it's because the Bible says so, but if you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe in the Bible, who says Jesus wasn't resurrected, well, how do you know? Were you there? Did you see his body rot? What, like, you know, and, and the answer is, well, there's no basis for that whatsoever. This is, and, and what you'll probably get, if we're honest, is something like, well, you can't prove Jesus was resurrected, right? And so what are we going to say to that? Well, I know Jesus was resurrected because it says so in the Bible. Oh, that's ridiculous! The Bible's a book of campfire stories. It's a bunch of myths. Nobody would believe that. Um, okay, well, you know, I understand you don't believe the Bible's true. Right? We've established that, but it's my mo- it's the most basic, you know, fundamental plank in my worldview. So I do believe it's true, and I, don't- and I understand you don't believe that. But let's talk a little bit about your worldview and and what you do believe, and how do you really know anything? Miracles are not real. Well, how do you know? What kind of miracles are we talking about? Um, just keep your your prayers aren't being listened to. Well, how could you possibly know that? Well, there, the answer, no, I mean, somebody who says that is going to almost certainly go to the problem of evil, right? Well, what about, you know, the, you know, the, the child dying of cancer and the parents pray and the child wasn't, you know, wasn't saved? Well, that's a serious objection. The problem of evil is a, is a real objection that we really have to deal with, right? And it's not an easy answer, but it requires us to go to the sovereignty of God, the fall, and sin in order to in order to give a real answer because you need to give a real answer you can't make light of that you can't blow that off you've got to say yes god created the world and yes it became corrupted by man through sin and the effects of that are spread throughout the world but the good news is that god has a plan for fixing it and it's all going to be right at the end right paul you got a, a question are you go into the in the um i'm not planning to but i haven't planned the last two classes yet so we'll see um all right, we're running out of time. Let's let's do a couple more. Um, so here's a meme that says the story of Passover. And It's got a picture of a guy wearing like a robe and a you know Arabic headdress, painting something red on the door, the, the, the sort of top post over his door, and it says where where an all knowing God needed help to kill the right babies. The end. The story of Passover. Um, all right, so. This this is the, sorry my picture has gone off the screen but this is another one we want to respond to say oh well what do you what do you mean by that say oh well you know I, I'm familiar with the story of Passover in the Bible and um, it doesn't make any sense why would God need people to mark their houses in order to know which babies not to kill all right well hey great you just you just set set up the volleyball for me that's fabulous well why don't we talk about the Passover right and what that was really about right and if we and if we study it and we look at it in the in context. What we learn is, you know, it's not that God didn't know which families were believing households. It's that it was an act of faith for people to comply with his law and to mark, and to mark their doorpost, right? We know that the Passover is, in fact, you know, an Old Testament sacrament, right, that, that, that's given. It's part of how God's people worshipped him and enjoyed sanctification. And so, no, it's not that God didn't know. It's that he, he, he credits to righteous, credits as righteousness those who have faith just like you did for Abraham. And so to paint the blood of that lamb on your doorpost is an expression of your faith, and it is through that faith that we are saved. Um, Sorry for for the problems with the projector. Okay, another tweet from someone whose Twitter handle is FuturePeace411, and it says um, that religion, and specifically the Abrahamic religions, are cons, question mark, yes, it's called logic. <laughs> uh, um, no, but again, this is, this is somebody really saying this, right? And so what are we going to say, really? Okay, so I take it from your tweet that you don't believe any of the Abrahamic religions are true. And in fact, you think they're being used for some kind of means of social control, that somebody's getting power or money or something out of it. Is that, is that what, you, what you believe? Well, why do you believe that? Well, I told you, logic. Oh, okay, well, so, you know, logic is a mathematical system where we take premises and arguments and build them and reach conclusions. Um, what is your logical argument for why the Abrahamic religions aren't true? And, you know, the move that you're then going to get is something about, well, they're inconsistent, or, well, you know, there's no, no evidence. Okay, well, how do you know that? And, of course, when someone mentions logic, what should, your, what should be going off in your brain? A flashing red light, really? Really, so you believe you can trust your reason? Why? Um, that's always that's always available to you um, I got to stop, but we'll do this last one. This is a tweet from someone called stephen parentheses q parentheses he slash him um, and it says gospels anonymous Tacitus hearsay josephus forgery there is no evidence that Jesus, either biblical or historical, was ever a real person um, all right so we're against same deal here first of all, all right so You say the Gospels are anonymous, so I take it by that you mean you don't think they are reliable, right? So you don't believe the Bible's true. Is that right? I mean, first of all, you say they're anonymous. They all have, like, a nominal author, so does that mean, I take it, you, 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 don't, you deny that, right? You say that, you know, Luke didn't write the book of Luke, Matthew didn't write the book of Matthew, is that right? Um, well, no, I don't think, that. okay, well, then, if Tacitus is a Roman, um, contemporary Roman historian, Josephus was the leader of a Jewish revolt who later went over to the other side and wrote some books, um, all contemporary uh, history, and so you don't think those are true either, right? Okay, well, are there any contemporary sources you think are true? And if so, how do you know they're true? Or are there other books you think are true? How about your biology textbook? Do you think that's true? How about Is there some other history books you think are true? How, how do you know they're true? Why are they reliable and these, these books aren't? And just start getting to that, right? You're going to get something like, well, you know, so many people think it's true, or, or, or I've read them and they seem right to me, or you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just keep asking the questions. How do you know? Why is that? What has to be true in order for that to be the case? And just get back down to the worldview. All right, I'm going to stop. Thank you for your attention. Let me pray quickly. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time together. We ask that you will um, bless bless us, Lord, and help us to meditate upon things we've learned this morning. Um, Be with us as we prepare for worship. In Jesus' name, amen.